Welcome back, everyone. I'm Peter Steinfeld. Today's episode focuses on the importance of workplace violence and active shooter preparedness. It was recorded just two days before the tragic mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, and less than two weeks before the horrific shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. This topic was definitely relevant before those two terrible events occurred and is even more timely now. I know today's guest, Bill Flynn, joins me in offering heartfelt condolences to everyone involved. It's an important reminder that the work that you all do in keeping your people safe and healthy, both physically and mentally, could not be more important. As you'll hear in our discussion today, Bill has personal experience with active shooter and workplace violence scenarios, having spent more than 30 years in domestic and international counterterrorism, the military, and public safety. He served in the NYPD for 24 years, including during 9-11, and held a senior role at the Department of Homeland Security. Today, he's the co-founder and chief strategy officer of an organization called The Power of Preparedness, which provides services dedicated to workplace violence and active shooter preparedness. Bill talks us through how to assess workplace risks and create a violence preparedness program at any organization. Thanks for listening. Bill, let's start with the most obvious question. Why is it important for organizations to prioritize workplace violence and active shooter training, and why now? Well, Peter, thank you, uh, first of all, for this opportunity to discuss a, um, a very important topic and a very timely topic uh, to, to all organizations. A couple of points here about you know, the importance of this training and, and why now. To start with, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, OSHA, has a general duty clause, and that clause requires that all employers provide a work environment free from recognized hazards that are causing or likely to cause death or serious physical harm. So it's a requirement. And, you know, I think we'll get into uh, some of why I believe this particular uh, risk is a high one. I think there isn't a week that goes by where we aren't seeing, reading, hearing about another horrific active shooter, you know, mass shooting, uh, some form of violence that's taking place. You know, in fact, we've come, you know, a little bit numb to it. But the reality is that these incidents are taking place. The numbers are, are pretty staggering. And it's just something that we need to pay attention to. The National Institute for the Prevention of Workplace Violence has indicated that U.S. corporations spend $120 billion annually responding to violence in the workplace. Staggering amount of money that uh, companies and corporations are spending. That includes close to a million lost workdays, $16 billion in lost wages, lost productivity, obviously litigation, cleanup costs, lawsuits, reputational impacts. So, so the impacts to a company uh, can be quite significant. A recent survey that I read, you know, quite interestingly, put out by Pinkerton, a global company and recognized for uh, risk management and security. Pinkerton did a survey of Fortune 500 companies, and the number one concern by chief security officers was workplace violence. And the other element, Peter, just to wrap it up on this, is that what I'm seeing, it, why it's important at this time, is that over the past several years, two, three years, certainly, you know, pre-COVID, but certainly during COVID, we've seen and we know that violence is often triggered by depression, by anxiety and mental stress. 
And the reality is that over the past few years, there's been a perfect storm of what I call societal stresses. Families are dealing with concerns about healthcare and a global pandemic. Families are concerned about meeting, you know, being able to pay their bills, dealing with you know, rapidly rising inflation. We've seen social unrest in the country, uh, starting with uh, the incidents after the George Floyd incident, uh, right up until the January 6th uh, riots in, in Washington, D.C. So there's been significant social unrest taking place in major cities across the country. You know, frankly, even now you wake up and you say to yourself, are we going to go to war with Russia? Are we on the, on the precipice of World War III? So the societal stressors that are, are happening, you know, play an important element, I believe, in why we're seeing uh, at this time and why it's so important at this time that organizations recognize the potential for violence in the workplace. Would you say, based on your experience and working with clients, that organizations are really starting to understand that and take it more seriously than they ever have in the past? I wish I could say that to be the case. I think that it's episodic at best. I think we're seeing it in certainly in certain industries. For example, healthcare, there's been a significant increase in violence in healthcare facilities. And the healthcare, you know, community, the healthcare industry has taken that pretty seriously. But we're seeing it, you know, it's a ubiquitous situation. We're seeing it in restaurants. You know, people are uh, stressed out. They don't want to, you know, adhere to mask mandates. They don't want to adhere to social distancing. We're seeing it in grocery stores, mass gathering venues. I do a lot of work in the utility industry. We're seeing it, seeing it there. So I think people are coming to grips with it now that we are getting hopefully back to some degree of normalcy, at least on a path to normalcy in the, in the post-COVID era. But I think it's something that more and more companies are realizing that it's something that they need to address and that they've probably been you know, late in getting into the game on. So how did you get into this? Does your background in law enforcement, homeland security, and the military really help inspire your passion for workplace violence training for organizations? Peter, I've been very blessed to work for three outstanding organizations in the course of my uh, three-decade career. I was in the United States Navy. I worked 24 years with the New York City Police Department. And then I went to Washington, D.C. and worked for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And I worked with some terrific people in all of those organizations and and learned a great deal uh, from them. In 2012, I was at the Department of Homeland Security at the time. I remember being in a meeting and, uh, and getting a notice about a mass shooting that took place in a small town in Connecticut called Newtown, an elementary school called Sandy Hook. This was 2012. A young man shot and killed 26 people. 20 of those were six and seven-year-olds. A tragedy uh, so horrific. I spoke to the police chief of Newtown, got to know him quite well, you know, small town, small police agency. And he said to me, Bill, I don't think any of my department will be able to continue. I anticipate that we're going to lose everybody. The trauma that they've been exposed to is just beyond explanation. And so in the aftermath of that horrific event, I was on a task force at the White House. I was a DHS component lead. There were other agencies, FBI, and, and a variety of different interagency partners there. And we, we looked at, you know, reducing gun violence, uh, understanding the dynamic that was going on, uh, charged with coming up with a series of recommendations. Uh, here we are a decade later. That was 2012. We're in 2022. And the number of mass shootings has increased exponentially. 
So it's been disheartening to see this phenomenon continue. I will say that I have seen dramatic improvements in the law enforcement response to these kinds of incidents. Going back to Columbine, but certainly in the aftermath of Sandy Hook, every law enforcement agency in the United States has received standardized tactical training in response to an active shooter incident. Years ago, it would be, you know, show up, uh, set up a perimeter, call in the SWAT team, and wait for the situation to unfold. Now, every law enforcement officer has been trained to go in immediately and render safe, take out the bad guy. And, you know, realizing that in most cases, that individual is in there to kill as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. So, yeah, I worked at the at the state and local level in New York City, got a great chance to work at the federal level on, on more strategic security, but realized shortly that issues like uh, mass shootings were a phenomenon that, you know, Homeland Security had to take some responsibility to help to, you know, mitigate, train, and help folks. So it's been a big part of what I've continued to do in the private consulting and training world. Yes, I remember when Sandy Hook happened, I was just absolutely horrified, as I'm sure all Americans were. Uh, I can't imagine the trauma the families and police officers and other first responders experienced that day. Thank you for sharing all that. I, I do appreciate it. Well, uh, based on something else you mentioned, when you work with organizations that want to do something about it and create workplace violence preparedness programs, what are some of the key focus areas for them? Some of the key focus areas, and I recommend that the initial step in developing a workplace violence uh, prevention preparedness program is to pull together a threat assessment team that will be responsible for assessing the vulnerability of the workplace that uh, that you're in to violence and agree on what the preventive uh, action should be. They should perform a risk assessment in, in that regard, conducting a thorough assessment of the, of the workplace and the steps that should be enacted by the company or the organization. It's important that an organization foster a supportive working environment. So you, you want that to be inclusive. You want employees to be part of the solution and part of the process. I think you need to establish very strict uh, policies against workplace violence. In fact, my recommendation is a zero tolerance policy. I think oftentimes, you know, violence in the workplace gets overlooked or gets downplayed. And what we see that it tends to escalate. And so I think you've got to be clear about what, what the message is. You've got to have that uh, support from the top and you've got to treat it as, a, as appropriately should be. I think you need to create emergency you know, response uh, and action plans. And then finally, you know, extremely important that you train your employees. And, and what I see oftentimes is that the security people get training, but the frontline people, the people that have interactions you know, associates, salespeople, you know, field-based personnel that deal with customers, clients, even interact with the public, don't get the training. And oftentimes, they're the ones that are potentially most at risk. They're the ones that are going to understand and see, you know, anomalous behavior. And uh, they need training to recognize, you know, what's appropriate, what's anomalous, and, and how to go about reporting it. So those, I think, are some of the you know, foundational principles that an organization should undertake when they're preparing a program of this nature. Yeah, I think that training is so key because like you said, the frontline people, the ones that are right in the thick of it, they might just be embarrassed or feel uncomfortable saying something. They don't want to cause trouble. 
that's just a big thing you've got to overcome. And the only way to do that is through training. You know, what we've seen time and time again is that people are on a pathway to violence. In other words, it's very, very rare that people just snap and decide one day I'm going to go in and, and cause violence or, God forbid, you know, create an active shooter incident. And it's on that pathway of violence where there are opportunities to identify and get assistance and support, ideally, but certainly to recognize the types of behavior that are indicative of someone that's on a, you know, a pathway that could turn violent. And ideally getting them you know, assistance and support before they you know, proceed too far down that path. But certainly if the behavior is recognized as being extreme and concerning, then it needs obviously to be appropriately reported within your organization or God forbid to 9-11 if it's, if it's life-threatening. But, you know, we just learned time and again that, you know, oh, we do the, you know, the retrospective, the after-action report, and we see there were so many warning signs, there were so many signals, there was, you know, anomalous behavior that took place, you know, that coworkers, family, friends observed uh, but didn't go about either trying to get help or uh, or report it appropriately. Well, why do you think so many organizations are hesitant to implement workplace violence training or develop a program? What are the biggest excuses that you hear? You know, I think that there's a you know, part of it is a belief that, you know, not in my backyard, the reality of having a very violent event, an active shooter type incident happening in my organization is, is extremely rare. And uh, I have other priorities. There are other things that I need to be focused and concerned about. So I, I don't think that organizations take it serious enough. And I think part of it is education, understanding, you know, really what risk is all about, that the probability of an event or the likelihood of something happening is one aspect of doing your assessment. But you've also got to look at, you know, what are your vulnerabilities? You know, how vulnerable are you to these kinds of incidents? In other words, you don't have, you know, you know, armed security guards, you know, in your facility in most cases. And then finally, what are the consequences of an event? And what we see that is the consequences of these events are extreme. We saw some of the numbers, we talked about some of the numbers, um, but, you know, these incidents become a crime scene. And that crime scene could mean that your business or organization is shut down, certainly for days, potentially weeks, months. And we've seen several that have never recovered. So the consequences of an event are so potentially high and catastrophic that if you look at it, well, the probability might be low. I would argue that, you know, it's low or medium, but it's trending in the wrong direction. It's trending where these violent acts are happening more often. We're seeing mass shootings happening, almost 700 mass shootings that took place in 2021. We've seen a continued increase of these incidents going back at least four or five years, 2021, you know, was an all-time record. And so far, the numbers that I'm seeing for 2022 were, were likely to outpace what happened in 2021. So, you know, to think that the probability is low, I think, is ignoring, you know, what the reality is of happening. But even if it is low to medium, the consequences are so significant that it's something that, you know, you can't ignore, that there needs to be some prudent steps and we know that we live in a litigious society so that if you're not taking prudent steps, you're going to be liable. So if you think about our audience here, we've got security and safety professionals who may be sitting down with their executives 
How do you recommend their organizations go about assessing their level of risk to help justify the need for more training and taking this more seriously overall? Yeah, you know, I think that's part of the, you know, forming that assessment team. And, you know, security is an important key component of that. But that should also include your HR department. It should include, you know, maybe your general counsel, your training department, and even, you know, representatives of your employees to really take a look at assessing what what the threats and the risks are. But I recommend we do a heat map approach where you kind of look at everything from an all hazards you know, approach, you know, what are the range of hazards that we are likely to face? Are those low, medium, and high? What are the consequences of those hazards? The bottom line is there's no perfect security plan, and people in the industry understand that. There's no way to eliminate risk. You know, what we have to do is work smartly to focus on where we believe the risk is the greatest and focus our attention resources to mitigate our highest risk. So looking at probability and consequences is two important components of that. And I would say that workplace violence is certainly is something that, you know, is a uh, growing probability. And the consequences of that range, certainly, because, you know, workplace violence can range from everything from bullying, cyberbullying, intimidation, uh, to outright, you know, physical attack. But the consequences can be significant. So I would think most companies would look at, at that as something that needs to be addressed. Because if you're not addressing it, you know, you're liable. Let me just talk quickly about a, an incident that I'm familiar with. I won't give attribution to it, but there was a, a newspaper media outlet uh, in a mid-Atlantic area of the United States. They had an active shooter, mass shooting incident uh, at the facility. Uh, 12 people, I believe, were killed. Two were wounded, seriously escaping. And so in the aftermath of that tragedy, and by the way, the, the local police, two police departments showed up within three minutes. So within three minutes, I mean, you can't do much better than even having a security person on scene. Three minutes, local law enforcement is on the scene. But the bad guy was in there to kill as many people as possible, as rapidly as possible. And so what we found out was that he had a grievance. There was a court case that he was involved in, and that media outlet highlighted that court case and spoke about it quite frequently in their, in their news outlet. He took umbrage with that. He made several threats in writing through emails, even coming to the facility and threatening uh, people that were in that work environment. And we also know now that despite that threat, there was no order of protection put in place. There was no enhanced security put in place. There was no training of the staff in what to do in the case of violence or an attack in the workplace. And it's unclear really how much information and coordination was done with local law enforcement. And so a real tragic incident, but there was a clear, you know, series of warning signs and threats that need to be acted upon. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things that organizations need to pay close attention to. I think one of the reasons organizations may not do anything is because they don't know where to start. So for those who are building their workplace violence preparedness programs for the first time, how can they get more concrete about their priorities and where should they begin? 
The federal government offers, um, I think, some excellent resources. Uh, my old job at the Department of Homeland Security and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, uh, the ready.gov website, they offer templates for developing plans. They have other resources that I think organizations you know, can find extremely helpful. But at the end of the day, I think you know, OSHA you know, kind of captures this, and OSHA with the responsibility of making sure that workplaces are safe and secure. And um, they identify several important elements when you're starting a program. And we touched upon some of these. You know, number one, management commitment and leadership. It needs to start from the top. You can't expect that you know, developing a, a program and developing a plan can be done unless it's clear you know, guidance, vision, commander's intent you know, from the top of the organization. You need employee participation. And so oftentimes we bring in senior staff, but to really develop a good workplace violence prevention program, it's good to get the input of, uh, of employees. Now, that could be representative members of your organization. I know some organizations that even bring in, you know, some of their union members to that process to be, you know, inclusive and collaborative. It requires undertaking an, uh, a worksite analysis, identifying what the potential hazards are, as we said, you know, what are, what are the likelihood of an incident or an event happening and what are the consequences, developing what your prevention and mitigation needs to be. Certainly training is foundational to all of that. If you're not training your employees, if that's not a start or a building block, I think, you know, you're, you're really missing it because the foundation of really preventing workplace violence is making sure that, you know, your workforce, you know, is trained, that your leadership is articulating that. And then, you know, finally, it's just making sure that your record keeping is well kept and that your program evaluation is done periodically. So it's not like you have a workplace violence prevention preparedness plan on the shelf. That is something that you regularly review, you regularly evaluate, you update your records so that you're in compliance and certainly you can document the work that you've done. You know, in an article you wrote for Security Magazine, you talked about why checking the box on active shooter and workplace violence preparedness and response training is no longer acceptable. Can you tell us more about that? What I see, unfortunately, is Organizations that are using an outdated approach, you know, death by PowerPoint, not reflective of what we are actually learning and seeing in the current threat environment. It's a static opportunity to show a PowerPoint presentation to the organization. And just so that's just not conducive to adult learning theory. People don't retain information in that kind of approach. Think of, you know, the times in our own lives and careers where we've had to sit through some really, you know, tough you know, boring PowerPoint presentations. The other thing is, you know, and I love police and law enforcement, and they come in and do stand-up training, and God bless them, they do a good job. But if you're not there uh, Tuesday at 2 o'clock to get the training in the conference room, you're not getting the training. And so when I say check the box, I don't think that organizations are really paying, you know, more serious attention to what types of training really help people retain the information? What do we need to be learning from the real-life situations that, that we're experiencing and help people understand and retain that? The FBI says that an active shooter event on average is over in five minutes or less. Five minutes. Law enforcement on average takes three to six minutes you know, to arrive on the scene. And so there's potentially a delta there of a couple of minutes between when the incident starts and when the good guys show up to try to render safe. 
And the decisions that people make in those couple of seconds and minutes can make the difference between who survives. So it's really important to train people for that muscle memory. When I talk to people, I try to give them an example of think about a time that you were flying on an aircraft. Maybe you were reading a book, maybe you were dozing, and then all of a sudden you hit violent turbulence. What happens? Your body reacts. You can't control it. Your brain is telling you that, you know, you're maybe in a life and death situation. It's sending those signals to your heart, your other parts of your body. So your heart is racing. You're starting to perspire. You're gripping the handrails. You're palpitating. You know, you may have tunnel vision. Your body is dealing with a situation where they feel that they're in a life and death situation. Well, that's what happens in an active shooter incident. And I don't care how experienced you are. Everyone is going to be, you know, shocked, frightened, and fearful. But the people that have received training are going to realize quickly what's happened and they're going to react based on the training and they're going to be decisive in the actions they take. The people that haven't been trained, that haven't gone through this muscle memory exercise, are going to go into denial. They're going to be frightened, scared, and they're going to be shocked and they're going to, you know, go into denial. You know, we heard time and time again in the Virginia uh, Tech shooting, students said, well, it was construction taking place on campus. I thought it was construction. Uh, people have said in the MGM studio attack in Vegas, they thought it was fireworks. We see fireworks all the time in Vegas. You know, people say it's balloons poppy. They don't want to believe that it could be a firearm. And so they waste time and minutes, even though they might be scared and frightened, they go into denial. And what we train and teach and what companies should be doing is building that muscle memory so people know quickly how to respond and act decisively. And that's why I think checking the box is no longer appropriate, that people really need to start looking more seriously at the quality of the training. Delivery of that training has got to be twofold, the content and the delivery so that people can retain it. Yeah, I think a big piece of what you just said is helping people overcome that fear of thinking, this isn't really happening to me. And the denial is just a huge part of it. And to me, the best way to overcome that is not just with one training per year, but to do a ton of micro-trainings throughout the year. Just have someone in security walk around and go grab three people and say, hey, there's an active shooter in the stairwell. Uh, this is a test, but what would you do? And then just do that like eight or 10 times a year and people will start to go, oh, okay, now I get it. Yeah, exactly. It's building that muscle memory, you know, whether it's online training, whether it's exercises, there's a lot of different ways of doing that. But the idea is it's not one and done. And this, look, this is important in, in, you know, on everyday lives, certainly important in the workplace, but these incidents are ubiquitous. I mean, it happens in every element of society. You got to be careful when you go to a, you know, a movie theater or shopping mall, uh, even houses of worship. And so having situational awareness, understanding what constitutes, you know, anomalous behavior, you know, clearly understanding where, you know, exits and entrances are as you enter a facility and and just building a security mindset. It comes after a while as second nature because you just build that muscle memory and you become, you know, kind of security conscious. It's unfortunate, but this is the reality and this is what people need to do. Could you share an example of a real world scenario of a recent project that you supported to help listeners understand the impact of this overall work? We deal with a lot of different industries. What I'm seeing a lot of, uh, what the power preparedness is um, working with a lot of organizations on is de-escalation training, de-escalation techniques, helping people understand how to handle an interpersonal uh, situation that's turning aggressive. De-escalation is not a natural instinct. 
our DNA, you know, has us to kind of mimic the behavior that we're confronted with. And so we need to train and we need to exercise those, uh, those skills to recognize the situation that is escalating and to know what steps with verbal and nonverbal techniques that you can take to kind of, you know, bring that situation, that discussion, that conversation back to a level of, uh, you know, degree of professionalism where you can have a conversation. Realizing that you're not going to change a person's mind. They have a right to think the way they want to think, but they don't have a right to act the way they want to act sometimes. And so de-escalation is a growing area that a lot of organizations are asking for, you know, training on because more and more of those frontline employees are dealing with it. Well, that's fantastic advice. Bill, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. And thanks for all of your efforts to help organizations provide safer workplaces for their people. Thank you, Peter. Thanks very much. Be safe. Yes, absolutely. And if anyone out there would like to learn more about the power of preparedness or just connect with you personally, how can they do that? Absolutely. Uh, I encourage that. So I'll give you my email address. It's wflynn, F-L-Y-N-N, at the power of preparedness.com. I encourage you to take a look at our website, www.thepowerofpreparedness.com. And I encourage you to um, join our TPOP, our Power Preparedness Security Forum on LinkedIn. We, we share a lot of best practices and lessons learned uh, in that forum, and it's a good dialogue. So uh, if you have a chance, join us on that as well. Well, thanks again to Bill and all of you out there for joining us on the Employee Safety Podcast. I hope you'll subscribe to the show at Alert Media's website or follow it on your favorite podcast player. We'd also appreciate you giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which helps others find the show. Have a safe week, everyone.